The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. What is good, Bulls fans? Welcome to the Hoop Ball Chicago Bulls podcast here on the Hoop Ball Network. My name is Greg Mraz, your host as always. Appreciate everybody that is tuning in to this episode. If this is your first experience with us, welcome. We hope that you enjoy the show, and if you do enjoy the show, you should subscribe to us. If you really enjoy the show, leave a rating. And if you want to comment on the show, you can write a review in that good old Apple Pods review box, or you can write it on Spotify or Stitcher or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. You know, it's funny. Dan Besbris asked me to do this podcast almost two months ago at this point, and I'm thinking, I want to join the Hoopball Network. That's number one. I want to be talking Bulls basketball, but is this the right time to get a Chicago Bulls podcast off the ground? I figured timing isn't everything, and you might as well just give it a shot and see what the content ends up delivering to you. Now, at that point, it was pretty clear the Bulls weren't going to make the playoffs, and there was just an expectation of rinse, wash, repeat when it came to the front office and Jim Boylan and the construction of this team. Well, the NBA comes to an end, at least for now, due to coronavirus. The season gets put on hold. It's pretty much expected the Bulls season is over, and then sure enough, the Bulls make a major move, and they hire Arturis Karnaschovas to take over the front office, and John Paxson gets reassigned, Gar Foreman gets outright let go, and the Bulls seemingly are going to be able to hire a new head coach if and when Arturis Karnaschovas pulls the trigger. So there's been a lot of Bulls news in a period where many didn't think there was going to be. And now, for the next five weeks, we have more content to evaluate, and that is, of course, the documentary that debuted last night, if you're listening to this on a Monday morning, The Last Dance, the story that, while it was advertised as documenting the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls, seemingly has gone all around the time periods of guys like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. They teased that episode three was going to be Dennis Rodman. I was just drawn in, fascinated. I was so looking forward to when this was going to debut, and it did not disappoint tonight. So our Monday episodes for the next couple of weeks are going to be our reviews of The Last Dance, or of the two parts 
from that previous night. Not of the series as a whole. I think as we go on, we'll probably be able to evaluate how each episode fits into the context of another. But for now, we've got two episodes to go off of, which is really a good starting baseline to establish what this series is going to be about. Now, it was great for me because I'm 27 years old. When the Chicago Bulls won their last title, I was not yet six years old. I don't remember it. I remember Michael Jordan storming the court in Utah when the Bulls won the title in 97-98. That's the only moment I remember of that team. I remember watching that on the couch with my dad. That's the only actual vivid memory that I have of that team. So it was awesome to go back and get the backstory on Michael Jordan that a lot of people didn't know. And the first episode was mainly the background behind Michael, his time at North Carolina, his time growing up in Wilmington, North Carolina, and his first two years in the NBA, which I didn't realize a couple of the things that had happened to him his first two years in the NBA. A lot of people know the story behind the draft, and I think that one of the things that gets lost with Michael Jordan is that he was not the second coming when he first came out of college. Everybody knew that he was really good, and you could tell from the interviews that you had with Roy Williams, who was an assistant for Michael Jordan at North Carolina, now the head coach for many years, and the late Dean Smith, that people knew that Jordan was good, but that it was that moment in the 1982 National Championship game against Georgetown, where, as he says in the documentary, he went from being Mike to Michael, where people knew who he was, people knew his name, and they knew the greatness that he could achieve. People forget also, Michael Jordan did not make the varsity basketball team at his high school as a sophomore. They said in the documentary, he goes from being 5'10", as a sophomore, to 6'3 as a junior, and becomes the best player on the floor. Another thing I didn't realize is that Dean Smith actually encouraged him to turn pro after his junior year. How often, with the exception of John Calipari, do you actually see a college coach encourage a guy to leave school and become a professional? It almost never happens. It very rarely happens. So as the documentary depicts, Jordan goes into the NBA and is just trying to become the best player that he can be. He wants to be the greatest. He is working harder than everybody else. And I think when people talk about this Michael versus LeBron comparison, we have to look at the fact that Michael Jordan had to work harder to achieve his greatness than LeBron did. Now, that's not saying that LeBron didn't work hard, but at their respective ages meaning when they both would have been freshmen in college. Who was a higher regarded player in that context? It was LeBron. But Michael became a great player. He had to work to become a great player. LeBron was already anointed as that great player and effectively had to work to maintain his greatness, which he proved he was great early on in his NBA career and maintained it. Now, something else to keep in mind here is that the era of basketball was a lot different back then than it is now. You know what's something that I noticed that I didn't actually think about? When I'm watching this show and I look at the highlights from the 1982 National Championship game, there's no three-point line. There's no three-point line in college when Jordan is playing. So the game's different now because there are so many people that are reliant 
on three-point shots. Michael Jordan didn't take three-point shots because they didn't exist in college. So he comes to the NBA and becomes one of the best mid-range shooters ever, one of the best drivers ever for a two-guard, and wills his team to win. Because some of his early Bulls teams, and we'll find out a little bit later once they encounter the bad boy Pistons in the late 80s, but the teams of 84 and 85, that was Jordan putting the team on his back and willing them to victory. I loved the story that was told about Michael's foot fracture in his second season. And Jerry Reinsdorf talking to Michael Jordan about the 9 and 10 pills. And Jordan said, well, how bad is the effing headache? I mean, that guy wanted to win that bad. And the fact that they put him on a minutes restriction, you looked at some of the images in that show, and you could tell that Michael was pissed that he wasn't playing. Like 14 minutes a night, 7 minutes a half, and they get into the playoffs because he was able to will his way through a 14-minute performance at 30-52, and 52. and then he goes in and he puts up 49 points against the Celtics in Game 1 and then goes for 63 in Game 2. I mean, those are ungodly numbers. But that was Michael. He wanted to be the best. He wanted to prove that he could be the best. And I'm very intrigued to see where this is going to go once they start getting further on into the 80s and into the Doug Collins era and into those eras of Bulls teams that were good but could not get over the top. Because let's face it, they marketed this as the last dance, but this is really a retrospective look at Michael and Scotty and Phil and Jerry Krause through the ages, going back and reliving a lot of those moments. And I think Jerry Krause is a great segue because Jerry Krause, for a lot of people that weren't around or don't remember the Bulls now deceased GM, he is somebody that is viewed in multiple ways. On the positive side of things, he is the architect of the first championships, the guy that brought Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and made the trade for Bill Cartwright. But he's also the guy that's viewed as the one that broke it all up. You know, I think at the beginning of episode one, it was pretty clear that Jerry Krause was upset that he didn't get as much of the credit for the Bulls' success as Michael and Phil Jackson did. And for that matter, Scottie Pippen. And the quote about organizations win championships and not players I think that's stuck with a lot of guys. And the fact that there's this rift, and I'm sure that we'll find out more about it, and granted, I say we'll find out more about it, I wasn't there, so I never saw what went down in the public eye between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson. But, I mean, think about it in the modern NBA. How could you have the next coach, who isn't even a part of the organization yet, parading around with the GM while the current coach is still there? You sign Phil Jackson to a one-year contract and then publicly declare that he will not be back next year. And Michael Jordan saying that he'll never play for another coach in Chicago but Phil Jackson. And it was pretty clear based on a lot of the clips you saw with Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan that they didn't really like Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause was somebody that, as the documentary said, had the ultimate little man syndrome. But Jerry Krause was the boss. Jerry Krause was the guy that you had to answer to, and it seemed like most of those guys just tried to avoid him whenever possible. 
The Scottie Pippen dynamic is really intriguing because Pippen signs a long-term contract in 1991 and over the course of that contract becomes not only a superstar but one of the most underpaid players in all of basketball. There was a graphic that they showed on Scott Van Pelt Sports Center right after episode two had finished. And it gave the salaries of the top five Chicago Bulls from that year. Pippen was number six. That was the last year of his contract. Jordan made $33 million, Ron Harper, 4.6. Tony Kukoc, 4.6. Dennis Rodman, 4.5. Luke Longley, 3.2. Scottie Pippen, 2.8. Luke Longley made more money than Scottie Pippen who was 122nd in the NBA in salary and 6th on his own team. And as the documentary said in that graphic, the little motion graphic they put up there, he was 1st or 2nd on the team in almost every statistical category during the Bulls' run, but 6th in salary. And Jerry Reinsdorf goes on and says, well, after you negotiate your contract, I don't want to see you again. Well... Scotty signed the contract because he said he wanted to make sure that he had longevity and take care of the people in his corner. But it became pretty clear that Scotty Pippen over time was increasingly, increasingly, per his value to the team, severely underpaid. And it's understandable that with somebody like Jerry Krause and maybe somebody in the purview of Jerry Reinsdorf, who is known as being cheap, that Pippen would have an issue. And I think the story that got highlighted there is that Pippen, almost in protest, gets his foot surgery during the middle of the summer instead of right after the season, so that he's missing the first two months of the 97-98 season. And the documentary starts to highlight that the Bulls were not exactly a stellar team to start that last dance year. Michael Jordan actually called Scottie Pippen out for being selfish, which is something that I didn't realize that there was ever a rift between those two because it just seemed like they went along so well together during the course of the championship run. You know, Michael and Scotty, Scotty and Michael. As Mike Wilbon said, Scotty Pippen is the best complimentary player in basketball history. Think about it. When you think about the Alpha and his first mate, who was a better first mate than Scotty Pippen? I don't think there was anybody. But again, that's a declarative statement. You could look at the statistics. You could look at the facts. You could look at how he played in the playoffs relative to a lot of other big number two guys. Like, let's take a Paul George, for example. Number two in OKC to Russell Westbrook. Number two with the Clippers to Kawhi Leonard. You just take a quick glance at the numbers, they don't compare. And Pippen came from Central Arkansas, which at that time, now it's a D1 school, Central Arkansas was an NAIA school. They were a school that nobody had heard of. Scottie Pippen gets drafted by the Supersonics and traded to the Bulls for Olden Polonese. Krause gets criticized a lot, but he made a lot of brilliant moves. The other one that we talked about a little bit earlier, trading away Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright. The Bulls got a true elite big man at the time in Bill Cartwright and somebody who played the post as well as anybody. But to talk more about the film itself, there's a lot of great introspective angles on the early parts of Michael's career and how big of a brand Michael had become. Going to Paris 
and playing in that exhibition series and seeing how lauded after Michael Jordan was and the type of rock star appeal that he had, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine on text message before I started recording this, and it's pretty clear that Michael Jordan was a rock star in the form of an athlete. Like, you don't see crowds like that like you saw in the film for athletes nowadays. You don't see people lining up five rows deep behind barricades outside of arena tunnels for LeBron James. Michael was that big. His brand became that global. And it was because he was that great and the Bulls were that good as a team. You know, I think that when you win five titles in seven years and you're the greatest player on the planet and you end up missing two years, which there will probably be a story behind Jordan's gambling issues and a lot of people knowing why Michael Jordan actually went to play baseball, not that he actually wanted to play baseball, but because he was actually serving a gambling suspension from the NBA that was never made public because the NBA didn't want it to be made public. And I think that that's going to come out a little bit later on, but Michael Jordan was just that guy. You can tell through his own words he didn't want to lose. He has this look in his eye throughout the entire filming of the first two episodes that he hated to lose. He hated when people beat him. You know, he's talking about his brother Larry Jordan always beating him when he was younger. That fueled Michael. I think that the competitive drive that Jordan had is what made him as great as he was and also made him as beloved worldwide as he was because people loved a superstar and people love a winner. And Michael Jordan's brand became bigger than the game of basketball itself. And you don't see that nowadays. I'd say the closest person you have to that now is probably Steph Curry. Curry is the poster child for perimeter basketball. He's the poster child for three-point shooting. But Curry doesn't have the same type of rock star status that Michael Jordan had. Now, they're teasing a Dennis Rodman episode for episode number three. And Dennis Rodman is somebody that, as they say in the show, is a little bit misunderstood. Somebody that people look at and say, well... This guy was outlandish and ridiculous in front of the camera, but actually quiet and reserved behind the scenes. I mean, Dennis Rodman may nowadays be known more for his off-the-court antics than his on-court antics, but the rebounding numbers in his career were off the charts. Rodman, from 91-92 to 97-98, averaged 15 rebounds per game Every year. Actually, that's not totally true. In 96, he averaged 14.9 in 95-96. In 92 with the Pistons, he averaged 18.7 rebounds per game. Who averages that many rebounds per game? That's unreal. Like, simply put, you average over 15 rebounds a game, you're creating that many more second-chance opportunities for your teammates. And the thing about Dennis Rodman, he was only a part of three Bulls teams. But, as Phil Jackson said, during that 97-98 season, he was the glue that held it all together while Pippen was out. And I'm very intrigued to see how that season in the regular season progresses from where it leaves off 
to when Scotty comes back and how they kick it from that malaise that they had to start the year into the overdrive that got them that sixth title. I think that this is going to be a tremendous series. I think it is extremely well done. I feel like the filmmakers put in a lot of time to make sure that they left no stone unturned. I am sincerely hoping that we get an episode strictly on Phil Jackson. I think that talking about Phil Jackson is critical to the story arc of the Chicago Bulls because Michael Jordan had three coaches before he got to Phil Jackson. I think there will be a big episode focusing on Doug Collins at some point during this documentary. I don't know when, but I think we'll get it. And I think that we'll get that period where Michael and Phil and the triangle offense all click together, and that team goes from being a great team to a championship team. A couple other final thoughts on the first episodes of The Last Dance. I think that Phil Jackson having a theme for every season and where that last dance phrase coming from is awesome. I think having President Obama in the documentary is amazing because it shows how big of a sports fan he was and how much the Michael Jordan era Bulls mattered to him. I thought it was actually quite refreshing seeing John Paxson as a player. But somebody actually commented on Twitter that they thought it was really funny that John Paxson witnessed a GM sabotaging a coach in front of his own eyes as a player and then him and Gar Foreman doing it to Tom Thibodeau as executives. I just find the irony there absolutely stunning. I'm sure that there are a few things that I'm leaving out in regards to the last dance. I tried to record this while it was still fresh in my mind, but I think we covered most of the big keys, most of the big takeaways. We're going to learn a lot more about this team as this series goes forward. But I think it's off to a great start. I think it's very well done. And I think the Bulls fans are going to love this when it's all said and done, bringing back the glory years of what, in my opinion, is the greatest decade of basketball by any individual team in the history of the sport. Have a great day, everybody. We will talk to you again soon if there's any Bulls news on the current front. If not... We'll be with you a week from today talking about episodes three and four of The Last Dance. We don't know what episode four is about. We've been told that Dennis Rodman is going to be the subject of episode three. So I imagine that episode four is probably either Phil Jackson or Tony Kukoc. Probably won't be Bill Wennington, although a Bill Wennington episode would actually be pretty cool. Have a great day, everybody. And as always, Go Bulls! This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.